This play is a classic because everyone in America should see it. This play is a classic because Lorraine Hansberry is a craftswoman, an artist, an activist, and just a creative, heartfelt tour de force all in one. This is our history. This is our legacy. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater podcast. We're your hosts. Emily Lyon, curator of Expand the Canon and artistic director of Hedgepig Ensemble. And me, Sky Pagan, curator for Expand the Canon and member of the Hedgepig Ensemble. And we're here to introduce you to some plays by women that are classics. Classics! Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. This literally is one of my favorite plays of all time. I will say it. Yes. It's like, un, like uh, oh my God. It is so good. Well, this was, um, this was the first play that was on the list. Oh yeah. We read this play and we were like, dun, this goes dun, on the list. Dun. Dun. <laughs> I remember when we were, when we were having a meeting, I, I had read this play and another Lorraine Hansberry play and I like almost couldn't talk about it at first. I was like, yeah. we have to come back to me. Hold on. I can't, I just have so many so many thoughts and feelings and I'm like I felt like full like emotionally yes intellectually yes. full so 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 Emily what is what what play are we here to talk about today we are thrilled beyond thrilled to talk to you today about Le Blanc by Lorraine Hansberry so if you're looking to tackle race imperialism and the prejudice of the western world towards African countries Consider this mesmerizing masterpiece. Set in a rural Christian mission in an unnamed African country, this play explores the complexities of navigating personal relationships across racial divides when every decision you make is inherently political. Intricate, atmospheric, and shimmering with emotional truth, this play is as relevant to our modern world now as it was 50 years ago. Lorraine Hansberry is the goat! Yes. And I, I feel like I, while I like that pitch, there's just so much, there's so much more to say about this play. I can't believe we even like ended up writing a short paragraph about it because I, I want to write books. I cannot believe how much she manages to pack in without it being either confusing, overwritten, or like having anything become sort of shallow. Like it's complex and deep, but like everything is woven together so well that like there's nothing that is wasted in this play. I think the word you keep using woven is really right on. It is, it is a layered piece. And what I think is incredible about her as a writer and about this as a play is that each scene, you see a new layer, you see a new element and it becomes a richer and deeper conversation about the personal ramifications of these both huge political, racial, divisive topics, and yet they remain in every scene and every moment deeply personal and intimate and clear. Mm -hmm. um, and I think her ability to layer that and be doing 
both simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And she just navigates that and threads that needle through every moment of this play. And it is one of the many reasons I am obsessed. It's like also like manages to be, which you were sort of touching on, is it manages to deal with these like really big political issues these social issues in a way that is so personal and real it's like they, there's like a lot of really explicit conversations in this play about imperialism about race about the attitudes of the western world towards african countries as we say in our pitch but it's like through these really grounded characters that feel very human that feel very emotional that and so like they make these very weighty ideas very grounded and real yeah i I want everyone in America to read this play or see this play or engage mm -hmm. with this play. I think we've been in conversation about what is it to to unpack both the the black experience in America but also like unpack what it is what exactly white supremacy looks like and what how it shows up and it's it's many many ways that it I don't know, mutates our relationships and, mm. and colors our expectations and is just ever present in so many of our interactions. And I think that LeBlanc really shows, shows doesn't tell what many of those like little insidious expectations and assumptions and, and problems look like and how there's always, you know, there's something rotten at the core of, the society of white supremacy of of many of our interactions through history mm -hmm. and i think she she unravels that truth beauty and artistry such as i haven't seen in maybe anything else yeah it's also i think i mean and we'll get to this also in sort of talking about lorraine hansberry herself is like she is somebody who really understood the global interconnectedness mm. of all these things of how racism in America, the black experience in America is tied to imperialism in Africa by Western countries and by British countries. Um, it, like all these things are interconnected and in order to uproot white supremacy, in order to uproot colonialism, you can't sort of be surgical about it. It has to be, mm. it has to be happening on a global scale. And if you don't understand the sort of macrocosm of how these things play into each other, you're always going to end up losing. You can't reform something just a little bit. You kind of have to uproot the problem everywhere it exists because otherwise it's just going to keep coming back. And that's the thing that this play does so well is it's like, this is a play that it is on its face about colonialism in Africa. But if you were to say that to a lot of audience members in America, people would be like, oh, but like, that's thousands and thousands of miles away. Right, that's separate. Exactly. And it's not. It's like absolutely not at all. But I think that that's brilliant because it also may, maybe means that more Americans could like listen to it because it's not necessarily as clearly uh, on its face pointed at at the U.S. Mm -hmm. But of course it absolutely is. It absolutely is. is. <laughs> um, so deeply is. Yeah. She pulls no punches in this play. Oh, it no. is like searing indictment of colonialism and uh, capitalism in a lot of ways and white supremacy and the American role in uh, colonial Africa, like all these things. And it's like, but it's a slow burn, you know, it's searing, it's searing, but it doesn't jump. It doesn't, it never really points fingers in an incredible way. It doesn't just like go there, but it 
goes there. Like, I don't know how to explain that other than like, it is a, a slow, slow seer, but absolutely. And I think it's so interesting watching all of the do-gooder white folks who are trying to just put a bandaid on something that they don't even understand. Yes. And I think also that's the thing that I think is really important about this play is it's not the sort of what I think is palatable to white audiences plays about racism Mm. where it's like here's that one sort of southern sounding racist guy who uses slurs that we can blame racism on and it's like no it's also like if we're saying white supremacy that means all white people are inherently a part of this by buying into it by you know their actions whether they intend to or not and so it this play is about how even the people who like theoretically have good intention there's a great line um i'm gonna misquote it slightly but it's something along the lines of well-intentioned imperialism is still imperialism and as we like shift into talking about the summary of this play Mm -hmm. i think that that will be so clear as to like the many many different ways that there are well-intentioned white people Mm -hmm. and why we should just generally stop those narratives yeah i also want to say just one more thing i love about this play is it's like really theatrical because sometimes you see a play and you're like that could have been an essay like she is a writer who is taking advantage of her medium the one thing i think was interesting that we didn't bring up is that like the inspiration for this play was a response to jean genet's the blacks which i love i mean you know you know i love a a feminist (laughs) clapback but i just think it's so badass that she not only was like this is in response to the thing that you said where you're romanticizing this relationship let me let me not just respond but let me drop like truth bomb after truth bomb and be so authentic and honest as i do it and yeah i'm so glad she saw that play i'm so glad she saw that play and got mad and wrote this instead legacy Okay, so this is a very complicated play, as we've seen. There's, As we said, there's a lot of different characters. So bear with me. I promise it's all important. So at the start of this play, we meet Charlie Morris, who is an American journalist. And he has just arrived at this Christian mission compound in an unnamed African country to write a piece about the mission there, uh, specifically the Reverend Nielsen, who started the place and runs it with his wife, Madame Nielsen. And so he arrives to find the Reverend Nielsen is actually absent. And so he's greeted at the compound by the two doctors there, uh, Dr. Marta Gotterling and Dr. Ville de Coven. This is like a Doctors Without Borders situation. They're like, you know, they've started their own sort of clinic there. And they begin to get uh, Charlie settled in. And there's they have like this conversation about how he needs to sort of disabuse himself of his expectations. He's remarking a lot on the clinic they've set up there is very crude. It's lacking yeah. sort of modern Western traditional medical facilities and uh the doctors are you know saying like we make do with what we can we don't have access to those things but like we're doing our best and what you read about in the american papers isn't necessarily what the experience of being in this country is like and we and we see that we see them treating some patients and yeah. it's not just that the the setup is crude but they're they can be fairly glib at times too with yes with the people they're treating yeah so throughout this whole conversation they are seeing various patients and uh, there, the people come from all over to get treated at this clinic. And throughout this scene, as they're having this conversation and as 
Charlie's getting settled in and are treating these patients. There's every periodically there's like drum sounds heard and the doctors are like kind of vague about what they mean. They don't seem to know specifically what they are. But eventually there are gunshots heard and, the and you know, Charlie's kind of alarmed by this. He's like, oh, gunshots, that's kind of scary. And the doctors are like, oh, but we're living in a war zone. That's kind of normal. And there's sort of like this clear sense of the news that has been reported about what is going on in this country in Africa is like not actually maybe what's actually going on. So Charlie comes in expecting one thing and then there's some gunshots and the mission isn't that well set up. And like the, the vibes are weird. And then uh, at, at, right after these gunshots come in, there's this guy, a military man named Major Rice. He enters, joins them, and he's clearly kind of hostile towards Charlie as a journalist and clearly very hostile to the various African villagers around them. He refers to them as terrorists and lots of other sort of loaded racialized language. And he asks Charlie if he can read Charlie's letters before Charlie sends them out, sort of continuing to imply that they don't want the realities of the violence of this area to get out. So Charlie like refuses this and remarks that he is surprised that things are so contentious. And he he's particularly surprised that things are so contentious uh, because he was referencing there's a local politician from the area, a man named Amos Kamalo, who's currently in Europe, lobbying on behalf of the native African population against the sort of settler colonial forces and trying to find some sort of political power for the native people because you know this is a country living that has been living under colonial rule so there's this uh, occupying settler population that has representation in the government and meanwhile the native population does not so this man kamalo is sort of like the voice of this country and is trying to work to get them more political power. And Charlie is remarking that like, oh, this is like a great thing. This is a great time. Like, shouldn't we be excited for this and what it might mean for the country? But the doctors are kind of dismissive of this idea. And Rice is kind of dismissive of this idea. And they're sort of making the argument that like nothing is going to happen because the white colonial settlers are angry that Europe is negotiating at all with this guy. And the local African population is angry because they're like still sort of taking this sort of diplomatic talk angle as opposed to like anything practical actually happening. And that theme of, you know, talking and using the sort of traditional diplomatic route versus like more what we would call like direct action is going to be a, a pervasive theme going forward right so anyway so all this happens rice then sort of goes off to deal with a uh, quote-unquote supposed terrorist that he caught in the bush and then reverend nielsen's wife madam nielsen comes in she's this elderly old woman she's got very sort of like nice old grandma vibes and she joins charlie and she sort of laments the change. She says that like when they founded the mission, they had this really great relationship with the local villagers. They were really close to them. They were friends. And then something shifted very suddenly and now nobody will speak to them. And she specifically blames the shift on an older man who lives in the nearby mission named Matosa, uh, saying that the antipathy kind of started with him. And so throughout this conversation where she's telling Charlie all this, this young guy a lighter skinned uh, African man named Eric comes in to sort of sneak some liquor. And Madame Nielsen remarks specifically on him and the fact that he has light skin and an English sounding name. And she says like, 
Dr. Dakovin sometimes leaves out some liquor for him, and she sort of makes some veiled comments about the fact that his light skin and his English-sounding name are not coincidental. So clearly something strange is happening with this young guy who's like a teenager. Yeah, and it's also sort of seen as like rowdy and and other, both like other yes. from the white mission, but also other from the black community, the, the African yes. community. So meanwhile, while Charlie's getting settled in, we meet a young man named Chembe who has just returned to the village dressed in European clothes, and he comes to the house where his brother, the very same Eric, lives. So he's Eric's older brother, and he's been away for a very long time, living and working in Europe. Comes out that he's actually even recently been married to a European woman. He had a kid with her, but he has returned home because his father, the old Natosa, who Madame Nielsen was talking about as like pot- potentially the source of some of the antipathy towards the mission, old Matosa has been in ill health. And so Eric had sent for Chembe to come home, see his father before he dies. Unfortunately for Chembe, it is revealed when he arrives that his father, old Matosa, had actually died only the night before waiting for Chembe to come home. Um, so it's Chembe's, you know, clearly devastated about this. He's really upset. Um, but he's happy to see Eric. It's been a really long time since he's been home. So they have this you know, really sweet scene where they're catching up and the conversation sort of turns lightly to politics. They talk a little bit about Kamalo, the uh, local politician. And it's clear from the way Chembe is talking that at least at some point in his life, he was fairly aligned with the sort of revolutionary cause against the white settlers. He seems more sort of like the retired revolutionary now. He seemed like he's kind of distanced himself from it. And it's also just important to note, like, even though Eric is um, clearly light-skinned, Shembe is not. Yes. So they start talking about their other brother, Abiosa, and wishing he was there. He hasn't been home in a while. And as they're talking about here, oh my god, Abiosa appears. Amazing. Abiosa is the oldest brother. They don't see him much. They're thrilled to see him. But uh, then it comes out and in that conversation that Abiosa is actually about to be ordained as a priest. And Chembe does not like that at Mm. all. So they have sort of a very tense conversation about it. And it's like this very complicated situation where like they're sort of arguing who gets to align themselves more as African versus who's more European. Like, is Chembe more European because he lives in Europe and has a European wife? Is Abiosa more European because he's aligned himself with this European religion? And here spreading it, yeah. Yeah, and there's that's very complicated. They're, they're just arguing about this, and eventually Chembe sort of storms off um, to take part in his father's burial, which will be this big traditional ceremony, and he storms off to do that. So, trouble at home. So back at the mission, meanwhile, um, Major Rice comes in uh, to interrupt the daily business at the with the doctors and Charlie to say that there have been some attacks on settler families and so what the white colonial settler families and a number yeah. of them have been killed. And, you know, these are attacks that are by local sort of revolutionary forces against the colonial families. And, and they uh, also were killing like the children in, yes. in those families as well. Yeah. Which is something that is like really upsets him. Yes. Everybody's really upset about that. And they're sort of processing what this means and what it might mean for them within this community when Chembe comes in to visit Madame Nielsen. And it's very clear they've had a historically warm relationship. And he's just about to leave 
after chatting with her and catching up when Major Rice stops him and asks, asks him why he doesn't have his papers with him. And this becomes very tense because everyone is like, this is Shembe, you know him, you clearly know him, you addressed him by his name, why are you asking for his papers? And Major Rice is doing the like, well, I just am doing my job, he has to follow the rules kind of thing. And Charlie kind of the kind of tries to defuse the situation, doesn't work, and Rice goes off on this like very racist, very pro-imperialist diatribe about how he, Major Rice, grew up in this country and has therefore as much a right to be there and defend himself as anyone else. And how uh, they won't suffer for this violence and how Chembe should go tell his fellow countrymen that or they'll be sorry. Cool. Not great. Nobody really says anything. Everybody else leaves. Chembe is left alone with Charlie. And Charlie, the journalist, is like, I'm going to chat up this guy. Let's have a chat. I want to drink, like, hang out with me. And Chembe is initially like, I'm. It's been a big day. Yeah. <laughs> for Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Chembe is like very much like initially, I do not want to chat with this random dude. Because there's also um like a uh curfew too. Like I can't get yes. stuck here with yes. you with this curfew going yes. on. Yes. Um so he's initially very reticent, but like Charlie makes convinces him, he like makes some jokes about well intentioned white folks and like promises not to talk about race or colonialism. Uh-huh. Um, so Chembe relents and then Charlie proceeds to do exactly what he said he wasn't going to do and talk about race and colonialism. Cool, cool, bro. So he, he <laughs> bro. So he reveals he's gone rogue from his newspaper, actually, to come do this story. He was supposed to be doing something else and he just like got on a different airplane because he says he was so moved and impressed by the work that the reverend and his wife are doing here that this mission is doing in the country. And Chembe is kind of like, whoa, 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 dude. And this is where that great line came in of like, well-intentioned imperialism is still imperialism. Like, you know, they might come, you know, be coming in here with some good thoughts, but like, let's not pretend that like, they are solving the problem. Just because Um, they have good press doesn't mean it's actually good stuff. Yes. And then they proceed to have this like incredible scene about and this is where that sort of skill of Hansberry's of like talking about these very heady ideas in a very from like a place of emotional truth really comes through. So like they cover colonial politics and Western attitudes towards Africa and American treatment of black people. And it's like Charlie's very much trying to make the point of like, we're on the same side. Like we're all just trying to help you. And Chembe is like, why do you think I need your help? Who are you to tell me what help I need from you? And it's very complicated and all this is suddenly, they're like getting pretty heated. And then this is brought to a sudden halt because Chembe has this vision of this woman who is clearly the embodiment of like this traditional female warrior figure. Clearly someone he sort of recognizes and he tries to word her off saying that he's left all this. He's left this fight. It's not his fight anymore. He's married. He's in Europe. He has a wife. He has a kid, but she won't listen and she continues to press him and there's this great moment she like tries to hand him a spear and he's like i'm done with spears end of the act that's definitely one of the scenes that i just can't get out of my mind that scene i know it's it's an unbelievable scene so time passes marta dr marta and charlie have been getting a little flirty until he starts questioning her about the reverend nielsen and the mission's role here and who eric's father might be and she gets very defensive and leaves charlie visits chembe to try and convince him to use chembe's position of authority and sort of his ability to align himself with the europeans and then align himself with the native african population to talk to his fellow villagers to try and cease the violence and they argue again, Chembe's trying to make Charlie understand that 
the native population has tried nonviolence for decades and nobody cared. And that in fact, violence was used against them for even longer and nobody cared. And Charlie is like not getting it and eventually leaves another great scene. (sighs) And then these two other villagers come to visit Chembe. And I wish I had time to like talk more about who all these people are, because like even the sort of quote unquote bit characters in this play are not bit characters. One of them is a servant, uh, a, a guy who has been sort of working as a servant for Major Rice, who, surprise, surprise, is a double agent mm-hmm. and Thankfully. has come to convince Chembe to join the Revolutionary Council. And they tell him that actually Chembe's father, Old Matosa, who Madame Nielsen had been talking about at the top of the play as like a potential ringleader in this revolution had in fact been that ringleader and they try and convince Chembe that he should take up his father's mantle essentially and lead the revolution and Chembe refuses saying he doesn't want to be any part of the violence so they leave they're not happy and then things start really disintegrating so Major Rice comes back in and assumes military command of the mission. None of the doctors or Madame Nielsen will really stand up to him despite Charlie's pleas. There's this great scene between Dr. DeCoven and Charlie where Dr. DeCoven is like, yeah, I've realized that we're imperialists here and it's bad. And Charlie is like, how can you say that? And DeCoven is like, how can you be in this world and have your eyes open and not see that? It's really fascinating. So nobody will stand up to Rice. And then worse, Rice tells them that that local politician, Amos Kamalo, who had been the hope of the revolution, was arrested for, quote, inciting violence. Obviously trumped up charges. The warrior woman, the mystical warrior woman, returns again for Chembe, and this time he accepts her invitation. So rolling back slightly, Abiosa, Chembe's older brother, who was trying to be a priest, had just found out accidentally from young Eric who the central figures of this revolutionary plot are. Namely, that it was that sort of double agent figure who'd been working with Rice. And he goes and he tells Major Rice this. And Rice returns to the compound with this uh, serving character who goes by Peter, but is actually named Nigalo, and says he's going to make an example of him. And he shoots him in front of everybody. And Rice also reveals that there's been another attack on a nearby settlement and that Reverend Nielsen himself was killed. Mm. Woof. So a lot of death. There's very much a sense of impending doom. And Madame Nielsen confesses to Charlie that like the Reverend was kind of anti-Black all along. She reveals that Major Rice was actually Eric's biological father and that Eric's mother had died in childbirth because the Reverend wouldn't intercede to help her because he was so anti-interracial marriages slash children um, that he would prefer to have a woman die and the child die than intervene. So Madame Nielsen herself had delivered the child. Which is so heartbreaking for so many reasons because she was, Madame Nielsen was so close to her. Also like, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, when we say that Major Rice was the father of Eric, I mean, yeah, he's the father, but it's not like they were having a a productive relationship that was super loving. Is not what no, I it's it's never explicitly said what the nature of that relationship is. I think it is very easy to assume that it was not consensual yeah. based on the way Major Rice acts and the way everybody is about it. So like clearly like terrible, terrible situation and like poor Eric has been left to suffer for it. And so Madame Nielsen and Dr. DeCoven, who's the guy who the doctor who's always drunk, who had given liquor to Eric 
are kind of the only people who like ever looked out for him in their own way too like when his mother died is it seems like when the mission went bad like even though there were anti-black sentiments from the reverend before it's like that's when the the waters really got poisoned well it was that and it was also um old Matosa Chembe's father had been doing this uh, and he, him and his revolutionary council and some of the other local leaders had been doing this thing where they would they would like sort of draw up essentially like potential laws or petitions or things like that and they would show that they were going to bring to the local settler government to lobby them for like more land restrictions voice on the council things like that and they would show them to the reverend for advice and he would sort of give them notes. And then one time they had come to him with a petition to ask for a voice in the government and he dismissed them and was like, I won't help yeah. you with this. So that was the beginning of the end, really. Like you wanted us to get along as long as I didn't ask for a seat at the table. Yeah. So bad, bad, bad. So all this is happening and everybody knows based on everything that's happened to this point, Rice killing this character in Gallo and the Reverend dying, the mission is about to become a target. So Charlie and the doctors are evacuated. Charlie and Chembe have this moment where before he Charlie leaves where they shake hands. Charlie has is like, I swear I heard what you're trying to tell me. Like I've been listening and Chembe is like very clearly unconvinced by that, but they do shake hands. Madame Nielsen remains behind. She's like, this is my home, I'm not leaving. The revolutionaries enter with Abiosa, uh, Chembe's brother, who had betrayed their cause to Major Rice, and Chembe himself shoots him. And then the st- the soldiers, Major Rice's military forces, storm the compound. They fight the revolutionaries. Uh, Madame Nielsen is killed in the crossfire, and the mission is burned to the ground. Everybody leaves, and Chembe is left alone with the wreckage of his former home and the bodies of Madame Nielsen and Abiosa. And that's the end of the play. <laughs> I mean, this is what you were saying too. Like, Lorraine Hansberry is so good at using her medium. Mm-hmm. It's a deeply theatrical play, and that's why we can tell you all about it, and it will still never convey the beauty of of Leblanc, of this yeah. play, of her brilliance. History. So, who is Lorraine Hansberry? Lorraine Vivian Hansberry was born on May 19th in 1930 in Chicago, Illinois. She was the youngest of four kids. Her father was a real estate broker and her mother taught at a driving school and served as a local ward committee woman. Sort of early formative experiences. In 1938, her family bought a house in the predominantly white area of the south side of Chicago called the Washington Park Subdivision. And this very much annoyed their new white neighbors who didn't want a black family living next door and they decided to fight the Hansberries through the legal system um, so you know this is in the post restoration era of a lot of redlining a lot of uh, housing disparities Chicago had a lot of issues with that and the Hansberries though are fighting back and so the case Hansberry versus Lee eventually escalated to the Supreme Court of the United States I didn't know that actually Oh my god, yes. So it's kind of complicated. The court basically ruled that the white neighbors of Hansbury's were using the zoning laws improperly to oust them, so they couldn't oust them. So there's a later court case. This this is a whole rabbit hole you can go into, and it's really interesting. I highly recommend it. I wonder it. if this like inspired a play or anything. Uh, more on that later. <laughs> but uh, they, like the case, it didn't 
outlaw the actual legalese, basically, that the white neighbors were using. It just said that they were using it improperly in this case. There was a later case in a a few years after that outlawed this sort of zoning uh, entirely. Super interesting rabbit hole. Anyway, as Emily alluded to, this experience with housing discrimination might go on to influence the young Lorraine Hansberry in a number of plays, perhaps one day leading her to some Tony nominations. Mm. More on that Mm. later. So as you may have gathered, the Hansberries were like, the Hansberries were very active in the Chicago NAACP and in local politics, and their home was this frequent hub for a lot of Black activists and celebrities in the civil rights movement, people like W.E.B. Du Bois and Langston Hughes and Duke Ellington and Jesse Owens. So Lorraine Hansberry is growing up, you know, getting access and uh, to these voices in the civil rights movement, and it's going to go on to be a huge influence on her and life. It's so cool that she saw her mother being a big part of that, too. Right. It wasn't yes. just like... Mother's a local politician. Yeah. yeah. Not just these amazing like, men. The, the whole family. Like, and if you look, like, her siblings go on to do stuff, too. It's real. They're a cool family. So this, as we said, runs of the family. Lorraine Hansberry herself went on to attend the University of Wisconsin at Madison. She was a badger. Where she... I don't know what that means. Sure. <laughs> I think that's their mascot. Your Midwest is showing. Sorry. Excuse me. Pardon. <laughs> So she went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, and she promptly became very active in the local Communist Party and led the fight to integrate a campus dormitory. She's baller. Uh, after graduating, she briefly went on to work in electoral politics. She worked on Henry A. Wallace's 1948 presidential campaign. I didn't know who he was either. He lost, but he was like a progressive candidate. He definitely lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So she also spent a summer studying painting in Mexico because why not? So like, just like a very intellectually curious, creative, driven woman. So after these experiences, she moved to New York in 1950 to pursue a career in writing. And in 1951, she joined the staff of the black newspaper in Harlem titled Freedom, which ran for about five years. And she moved up to Harlem and her writing and her editorial work there was notably political and uh as we sort of alluded to in some of our earlier conversations she very much uh had this understanding and vocal outspokenness for the sort of interconnectedness of a lot of these isms um so she's drawing connections between class politics and the communist agenda and the fight against white supremacy and like colonialism and all these things and how they are interconnected and she was very vocal on the fight for racial and gender equality on a global scale in addition to a domestic one she you know was writing about politics in africa as much as she was writing about you know voting rights in the south and she was very staunchly anti-imperialist and colonialist as we see in works like Le and you know that was before intersectional was a term but i think yes. that that's so much of her so many of her views is just like how yeah. intersectional everything all of these dimensions are and it's a thing that like we often are, are like skirting around in our education system in conversations about the early civil rights movement is a lot of it was connected to communism the black panther party had communist ties and like these things these this sort of class solidarity with race solidarity with gender equity was like very interconnected in a lot of ways and we like to like, gloss over that because yeah or you know racist capitalist reasons yeah because if it's in a silo we can just put a band-aid on that specific thing 
Yes. So during her time at Freedom Magazine, she began to write some scripts for some of the news. They had these like newspaper pageants and celebrations, and she would just write her, these little scripts for them, and thus began her foray into theater. So she married a man named Robert Nemiroff in 1953. He was a songwriter and a political activist, and this allowed Hansberry to transition to writing full time. They did separate pretty quickly. They separated in 1957 and they divorced a few years later, um, although they retained a professional relationship until Hansberry's death. Oh. So in 1957, that same year they separated, Hansberry wrote what would go on to be her history-making play, A Raisin in the Sun, uh, drawing from a lot on those experiences with housing discrimination back in Chicago. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you are at least familiar with it if you haven't read it. Please God read it. It's brilliant. This opened on Broadway in 1959. It was nominated for four Tonys, including Best Play. This was the first time a Black woman playwright had had a play on Broadway. She was 29 years old. And this led to like this meteoric rise to fame. Overnight, she's, you know, well known. She's the plays translated in 35 languages. She's commissioned. Yes by a number of film studios to write several more projects, including a film of Raisin and then a television show about slavery called The Drinking Gourd, both of which were at the last second rejected by the networks for being, quote, too controversial. Ugh. The yeah. Drinking Gourd, you can still find scripts of, I think, in one of the anthologies that has LeBlanc, you can read at least parts of that. Um, so following this rise to fame and her divorce, Hansberry, who had long been a closeted lesbian, felt... Oh my god! Yeah. Um, I did so, not know that! Yeah, so she she was under a lot of pressure to hide her feelings from the public eye. Oh. She didn't feel comfortable. You know, this so is the 1950s. She, she, like, it's, it's yeah. very much not cool to be out. I'm sure it's extremely not cool to be out as a woman of color, as a black woman. Um, and when you're, like, trailblazing and feel like you have to represent everyone that looks like you yeah exactly so she's like really stressed about this she did contribute some letters to a few queer rights organizations and magazines she never published under her full name it was always under her initials and she never like openly aligned herself with the the gay uh, liberation movement however later in her life after her divorce and uh, a little further on into success she did seem to be getting more comfortable uh, openly sort of navigating her sexuality she developed this network of queer friends she started having a few relationships with other women and she began vacationing in provincetown get it yep however um all of this is tragically cut so so short she developed pancreatic cancer at the age of 34 and died within a year so so unbelievably young and she's like on she's you know, on this just upward trajectory, she had had her performance of Raisin just five years before and five years later she's dead. It's unbelievably tragic. Her funeral was attended by the likes of activists like Paul Robeson and James Foreman. And there were messages read aloud from both James Baldwin and Martin Luther King at her funeral, um, yeah. sort of acknowledging her unique voice and the genius that she had and what a loss it was to both like the black community but also just like culture as a whole because yeah. she was an artistic voice that comes once in a generation and she died so young so although she had only lived to see two of her plays performed one was raisin one was the sign of sydney brucine's window which we recommend great play she had lived to see many of her other writings published, a lot of essays and articles, and a lot of her work was published posthumously at the behest of her ex-husband, including Leigh Blanc. 
So she remains to this day one of the most influential writers, activists, thinkers of the 20th century. The loss of her genius truly is like yeah. incalculable, but the works that she did manage to put out there in such a short life are just a gift and how lucky we are that she like got to share what she did with us. So yeah, that's Lorraine Hansberry. I will never have enough Lorraine Hansberry in my life. No. None of us will. Thank you for joining us for our Le Blanc edition of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Find where to get this script and learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, a colleague, or a professor. Forward the script to a friend. I did that the other day. Let's make it go everywhere. Everyone should read this play. If you haven't heard us say that enough. <laughs> <laughs> For info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or Facebook. Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or you can join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also, I've just remembered, we have a TikTok now. So find us on TikTok. Hey. Hey. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. Once again, I'm Sky Pagan. And I'm Emily Lyon. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Read this play. <laughs>